following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. If you would, please take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 9. We are confronted again here in the ninth chapter of Matthew with what we were confronted with last week in chapter 8, namely the authority of the king the authority of the king. And so I just want to read our text this morning as we jump in. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is, a new, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. 
For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, two blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Sorry, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. When he touched their eyes, then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when he had... And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Authority can be a very dangerous thing if it's in the hands of the wrong people. History is a tragic record of how authority has been abused by our fallen human race. Because of the depravity and sinfulness of man, authority is abused and used to advance man's depraved and sinful ambitions, which often leaves ruin and misery in the wake. However, the authority of the king that the Apostle Matthew presents to us is diametrically opposed to every other human authority that ever was and ever will be. And that's because this king exercises his authority and his rule and his dominion to accomplish the greatest possible good in the lives of those who deserve nothing but banishment and punishment, exile. And execution. He uses his authority to demonstrate his mercy. Last week, we defined the authority of God as his right to direct the whole course of nature and history as he pleases. And it is breathtakingly good news that the way in which he has chosen to direct the whole course of nature and history is in the everlasting display of his mercy. In that colossal ninth chapter of Romans, when Paul defends the sovereignty of God and the freedom of God to choose and save whom he wills, 
the apostle anchors God's purpose of election and all of salvation in the mercy of God. The mercy of God. He quotes Exodus 33, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul concludes by saying, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. When Paul thinks of election, he refers to the elect as vessels of mercy, which God has prepared beforehand for glory. We are vessels of mercy into which the Son of God has poured his mercy. And furthermore, if the apex and pinnacle of history is the incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Son of God, listen to what the Apostle Paul said concerning the very purpose and reason for his coming into the world. He says, I tell you that Christ came, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The Son of God came down from heaven in order that we Gentiles might glorify the mercy of God. God has the right to banish us and exile us from himself and from every good gift in creation. He has that right. He has that authority because he is God and because he is good and because he is righteous and because he is just and because we have sinned against him. He has the authority and the right to exile us, to banish us. He has the authority to take away from us the breath of life and to cause our bodies to return to the dust. He has that right. He has the authority to inflict and pour out the fullness of his wrath upon us because he is righteous and we are guilty and we are sinful. Right now, God has the right and the authority to command his angels to gather us and throw us into hell for the countless crimes that we've committed against his honor and his glory. And the only reason we are not in hell this morning, right now, suffering in indescribable agony and misery is because he has chosen to be merciful toward us. He's chosen to show mercy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, Jeremiah said. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. What glorious good news it is to us sinners that the most high God is also the most merciful God. That God most high is also God most merciful. If God's authority can be defined as his right to direct the whole course of nature and history as he pleases... God's mercy can be defined as his inner compassion and pity that is ever ready to relieve our misery and distress that are ultimately the consequences of sin in this world. 
Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology puts it like this. Another important aspect of the goodness and love of God is his mercy or tender compassion. If the grace of God contemplates man as guilty before God and therefore in need of forgiveness, the mercy of God contemplates man as one who is bearing the consequences of sin, who is in a pitiable condition and who therefore needs divine help. It may be defined as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of what they deserve. In his mercy, he concludes, God reveals himself as a compassionate God who pities those who are in misery and is ever ready to relieve their distress. So mercy sees us in our misery, in our brokenness, in our fallenness, in our wretchedness. And mercy reaches down to relieve us in such a state. That's what mercy is in God. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 9 this morning, we are confronted again by the authority and mercy of the king. We see again that he has the authority over sickness. But Matthew now calls our attention to the more important reality. Namely, that our king has the authority to forgive sin to forgive sin. The chapter is broken up into seven sections, and each section has something to say to us about the king's merciful authority. As we look at this first story in verses 1 to 8, Matthew wants us to see that our king has the authority to forgive the guilty. Our king has the authority to forgive the guilty. Jesus, getting into the boat, remember the last story? He's in Gadara region of the Gadarenes. He's cast out two, he's cast out demons from two men. The, the, the crowds come out after the report and they, they see what has happened. In another account, they see at least one of the men sane and in his right mind there sitting at the feet of Christ. And they're terrified and they beg Jesus to leave. They beg Jesus to leave. The ones who should have been begging him to have mercy on them are begging him to leave. And it's interesting because I didn't touch on it last week, but in one of the other gospels, you find that the man wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted to get into the boat. And Jesus said, go back into the city and tell what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. It's interesting that Jesus sends the man to the very people that are begging Jesus to leave as if to say, they need to hear, they need mercy, they need this good news. And so when he gets into the boat, he crosses over to the other side, came over and came to his own city, which is Capernaum. And behold, these friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus lying on a bed. This man is completely helpless, completely hopeless humanly speaking. And when Jesus saw their faith, he turns to the paralyzed man and says in very intimate language, take heart, my son, or be of good courage, my son, my son. It was language that a rabbi would use with his disciples. Your sins are forgiven. What a pronouncement. Your sins are forgiven. What would your response be if you were the friends? What would your response be if you were in the crowd? 
it seems at first insensitive, confusing at best. He came because of his paralysis. Who knows how long he has been in this condition, but he can't move, can't walk, needs to be carried by his friends. Everywhere he goes, that or he's, he's begging. He's either being carried or he's begging. He's helpless. And Jesus says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. He pronounces forgiveness. It's like we came for the paralysis. We came for one purpose. It was not this. Now, I'm not saying they said that, but that's, that would be the initial response. This goes to show that our Lord knows and sees our real and true need. That was true then, and it is true now. The Bible is full of situations where man thinks he needs one thing, but God sees our real and true need. God has to step in and correct us because as God, he knows our real needs. I think, for example, of the church in Laodicea. They thought they needed something, or they thought, rather, they needed nothing. Jesus comes and he says to them, You are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And then he says, Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Jesus knows our real needs and Jesus in this story addresses the real need is that not only is this man helpless physically, but he is condemned and guilty spiritually before God. He is condemned and guilty. What do you see as your real need this morning? When you stand before the living God, what do you see as your greatest need? Is it physical health? Is it financial help? What is your real need? I want you to know this morning that God knows your real need. And the more you invest yourself by pouring yourself into the word and having the word poured into you, you become aware really quickly of what your real needs are, of what you really and truly need. So Jesus pronounces this forgiveness over this man. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And notice the response of the scribes, the religious leaders. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. The reason they're saying this is because Jesus has just done something that only God can do. Jesus is claiming in an indirect manner that he is God and he has the authority to forgive sins, to forgive anyone. And the penalty for blasphemy would have been stoning. And so they're, 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 they're very clear in what they're thinking. They're thinking this man has just claimed to be God and they're saying he is blaspheming. He is insulting God. But notice verse four. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? You see, he knows our needs and he knows our thoughts. This is more than just Jesus being able to read the mind like we say today. I, I, can, I can read your mind right now. This is more than that. 
This is Jesus putting himself on the same level as Yahweh, of whom it was said, 1 Chronicles 28, 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. Psalm 7, verse 9, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Psalm 94, 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. Psalm 139, 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, Yahweh says, I, Yahweh, search the heart and I test the mind. And it's interesting because Jesus quotes that in his letters to the churches in Revelation. Revelation 2, verse 23, when he's addressing Thyatira, he says, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I, Jesus, am he who searches mind and heart. He knows our needs and he knows the hearts of all. And he knows that they are disagreeing with what he has just done. He knows that they're accusing him of blasphemy. And then he asks the question, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, well, on an external level, you can't see what really happened in the spiritual realm. You can't see if... There's truly been a a change of status before the living God by pronouncing someone forgiven. I mean, at best you can take someone's word, right? You you see that within Roman Catholicism. Forgiveness is pronounced. uh, Go do this, go pray that, and, and you're good. It's easy to say you're forgiven. It's extremely hard to say to a paralyzed person, rise, take up your bed and go home. And that's exactly what he does, right? Look what happens. But that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now he turns to the paralytic. He's addressing the scribes. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what have we been impressed with again and again and again in these chapters? The authority of the king's word. He says, rise, and he rose. Look at verse 7. This is the same God who has just calmed the stormy seas and has hushed the winds. He has demonstrated his authoritative word, and now we see him again speaking and then seeing the immediate results. He rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They're they're, they're in the presence of the divine here. They're aware that this is something beyond human. They're in the presence of God. The merciful, most high God. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Again, Matthew wants us to see the authority of this king. What's interesting about this is that Jesus, again here, refers to himself as the Son of Man, which takes us again back to where we find the original phrase, Son of Man, which is Daniel chapter 7, where we read that the Ancient of Days prepares thrones and he occupies one of those thrones. Well, another one of these thrones is obviously reserved for the Son of Man who was escorted 
before the Ancient of Days, who was presented later on in the vision before the Ancient of Days and was given dominion. And so what's interesting is that both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, his co-regent, will together judge humanity. And therefore, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin. Now, what does this really mean? The authority to forgive sin. What is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is God's right to not count your sin against you. It's not a denial of your sin. It's a, a decision not to hold your sin against you. The reality is that we, as Christians, by the grace of God, we have been forgiven. God has chosen not to count our sins against us. That's not a denial to, that, that's not God not dealing with sin. It's not dealing with you regarding your sin. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities, the psalmist celebrated. Why is that? Because he counted our sin against Christ. God counted our sin against his own son. The sin, the reality of your sin and guilt and condemnation is there and it's real and it's present before God. But he doesn't count it against you because he counted it 2,000 years ago against his son. And Jesus here in this story has the authority to say to this man, my father and I, as one, do not count your sin against you, knowing full well that about three years from now, that sin, that man's sin would be counted against himself, the sin bearer, the substitute, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Your sins are forgiven. This is an echo of Matthew 1, 21, where the angel appears to Joseph in the dream and says that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The authority of his word, he pronounces forgiveness and that man is forgiven. He's brought into a whole new relationship with God. Now, what is sin? One catechism says that sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. The Apostle John says that sin is lawlessness. And the Bible says that all of us have committed sin, many sins, plural, against the living God. And yet notice, how merciful he has been with us. Adam and Eve sinned once and they were banished from Eden. God has the authority to banish you right now and yet what has he done? He has used his authority to not count your sin against you as a believer. If you're an unbeliever this morning, you're without Christ. Your heart is cold toward Christ. Your heart is cold toward God. I want you to know that this morning you can be forgiven you can have it so that when you stand before God, God looks at you and says, you've sinned. You've sinned many times. You've traded my glory. You've exchanged my glory for idols time and time again. But I do not count your sin against you because I've counted it against my own son on the cross. Will you receive forgiveness today? Forgiveness that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ calling upon his name. He has the authority to not count your sin and your guilt against you. 
I want you to know that when you bow humbly, when you bow joyfully to his authority, you receive his mercy. You receive his mercy. The next story, we see that our king not only has authority to forgive the guilty, but he has the authority to call the sinful, to call the sinful. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. What's Matthew calling our attention to again? The authoritative, merciful word of the king that brings instant results. He says, follow me. Matthew rises from the tax booth and follows him. Now, this is a fascinating story because Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been a very, very despised individual in that day. Tax collectors were not looked upon with any sense of honor or respect whatsoever. Matthew was, by definition of Judaism, unclean. He was despised as a tax collector. They were viewed as traitors who allied themselves with the Roman government in order to benefit financially. Tax collectors, and I quote one commentary, were notorious for inventing new taxes on the spot so they could increase their profits. Tax collectors were so notoriously dishonest that, the, that they were not generally qualified to serve as witnesses on the trial. This is Matthew, the writer of this gospel, who now, as a transformed disciple, is carefully crafting this gospel to be as truthful as he can as a what? Faithful witness. A man who was not able to be a witness in court is now the first witness in the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? How God transforms us, wretched, miserable, blind sinners, into witnesses and then sends them out to the ends of the earth. Tax collectors, by definition of Judaism, were ritually unclean because of their frequent interactions with Gentiles on a daily basis. In fact, if a tax collector went into a Jewish home, that, that house and everything in it was considered to be defiled. And now you have this messianic king come in and call this man to follow him. He's calling the despised, the despicable, the depraved. So the fact that Matthew was a man of unsavory character by all the bystanders, this would have been a shocking image for anyone witnessing this interaction. For Jesus to even have any interaction with him at all is just sheer mercy and grace. And notice he arises and he follows him. That's Matthew's way of saying it was instant. He was abandoning his livelihood, much like the first disciples back in chapter 4 that abandoned their boats. The call to discipleship was eventually accompanied by a call to repentance. Matthew likely had much sin to repent of, as we do. And yet he calls us. This is an effectual call. This is 
this is a physical picture of the effectual inner efficacious call of God. When God calls you by name, you come. You come. There, there is an external general call that goes out, and that is often rejected. But there, thank God, is a deeper, inner, effective call that when it goes forth, you come, you leave your old life, and you experience the transformation of God, the transforming power of God. And so we see this inevitably attracts the attention of more people like Matthew. Look at the next verse, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Again, this display of mercy was magnetic in its effect. It was, it, it was magnetic in that it was calling and drawing all kinds of tax collectors and sinners to this Jewish teacher who is willing to be in their presence, who is willing to, to, to sit and enjoy a meal with them. This is unheard of in the history of Israel. He is drawing them. He is drawing them, calling them. And when the Pharisees saw this, Notice it wasn't just tax collectors. It was all kinds of different sinners. Unclean people by definition of the Pharisees. And they're sitting with Jesus and his disciples. Again, he's breaking all the cultural and religious norms in order to save his people, in order to demonstrate his magnanimous heart and indescribably glorious mercy. He's breaking the norm. You would not want to be even seen with these people. You know, we, taught, we saw last week how if you touched the leper, you yourself would become unclean. Jesus touches the leper and the leper becomes clean. The leper is healed. Jesus is not defiled. And in this sense as well, he interacts with sinners and he's not defiled. He, he, he's the God of light who... Who is, there's no darkness in him at all. And when he comes into contact with sinners, they are enlightened. They become light. And that's exactly what happens here. Pharisees see this and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is apparently a side conversation. Well, Jesus hears it. And he says, he gives a little illustration. He says, those who are well have no need of a doctor. No need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he's showing that he himself is this great physician. He is the good physician. He is the one from heaven who has come to not deal with a room full of healthy people. He has come to deal with a world of sick people, sick in their sin, sick in their depravity, sick in their lust sick in their idolatry, diseased in their depravity. That's who he's come for. He says, go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, the, this, the Pharisees were so concerned about offering right sacrifice before God. They were concerned about the vertical relationship with God to the neglect of not showing any mercy on the horizontal level with humanity. 
He says, you need to go and learn what this means. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And notice how he concludes. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners. I came to summon sinners. He has the authority to do that. Again, because he has the authority to not count their sin against them. Because he would one day, it would one day be counted against him. And so he says, I came not to call the righteous. And in this context, this is the self-righteous, the, 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 those who are righteous in their own eyes. He says, I came not to call them. I came to call sinners. That for you, friend, if you are not in Christ this morning, is the first step in salvation. You need to understand what you are as defined and described by the living God who knows you better than your closest friend is that you are a sinner. You have broken God's law. You have disobeyed God's will. You have thrown yourself against his commandments and you've fallen broken before those commandments because you cannot keep them. He calls you. Of all people, he calls you. He's calling you this morning to come to him and receive forgiveness. He came to call sinners. Next, we see that not only our king has the authority to forgive the guilty, he has the authority to call the sinful, but notice in verses 14 through 17, he has the authority to inaugurate the new or to usher in the new. He has the authority to usher in the new. Then the disciples of John came to him. Throughout some of the gospels, you see that there is some rivalry There was some tension between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus, right? The disciples of John were there first. John arrived on the scene earlier in his ministry, introduced Christ, welcomed Christ into the public eye. And so, as you can imagine, some of those disciples had a hard time letting go of John. John did not. John was like, he must increase, I must decrease, I must fade into the background. But some of those disciples had a hard time, and so we, we have here a hint of this. And they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They identify themselves with the Pharisees. We're doing what they do. Why don't you do it? Why don't your disciples do it? And Jesus asks the question, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, this is a time of celebration. This is a an, a, an, an age. This is a gospel. This is now the gospel age, right? This is a time for celebration. This is the dawning of the King. This is the the, the appearing of the long-awaited Messiah. This is a time for celebration. The bridegroom is amongst the wedding guests. Can they mourn while I'm here? And then he says, "The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast." In other words, he associates fasting in this chapter, in this section, with mourning. There's many reasons to fast. One of them is to go into an intensified mourning, whether it's mourning over your sin, the sin of those around you, the lost condition of your your, your loved ones. You you fast in order to, and it's not an end in itself, it, it heightens Prayer, it, 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 it informs prayer. It, it cultivates a deeper intimacy in prayer because you're acutely aware of the real needs because you've gone without certain foods. 
in order to heighten and, and really focus your attention on the real need. Jesus alludes to the time when he will be taken away in death and eventually in his ascension. Even though he'd be with them presently, right? I'm with you always to the end of the age. His physical pre- presence would be lacking. And that in that day would be a need for fasting and drawing near in prayer because the bridegroom is taken away. And then he gives some illustrations here to that a lot of people think don't fit with the context, but I'm arguing that they do fit with the context. You see, their whole thing was, why don't, you, why don't your disciples fast the way we and the Pharisees fast? You see, there were certain religious practices, fasting being one of them, that were attached to the old covenant. You would fast on certain feasts, feast, uh, certain, um, sorry, the Day of Atonement. You would fast... For different occasions. And Jesus says, well, look what he says. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. It's understandable, right? You can't take a, a brand new patch and, and, and put it on, 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 an, on a fabric that's just about to decay. That, that new one's going to shrink, and it's going to make a, a worse hole with it. I mean, they have remedies for that now with some of the patches they make. But in that day, you would get this. He gives another illustration. Verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. What Jesus is saying in these illustrations is that I didn't come to patch up any of the old system. I came to fulfill it. He didn't come to patch up and pour new wine into wineskins that were going to be replaced. We're on the verge of being replaced, fulfilled, made new. He's coming with a new covenant, offering a new relationship with God. And, and even the, the life he calls us to isn't a type of Old Testament life, Christianized, if you will. He's come to bring in a whole new era, a whole new covenant, a whole new way of dealing and being dealt with by God. Our king has the authority to usher in the new, and that's what he does with his life and with his ministry Fourthly, he has the authority to not only forgive the guilty and call the sinful and inaugurate the new, but he has the authority to raise the dead. Look at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Notice the posture. This is, in the Greek, this is worship. He is falling before him. He is worshiping. This is a ruler of the synagogue, a man who would have been in charge of the, 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 the worship and the ministry that takes place in the synagogue. He's a well-known man, well-respected man, dignified man, a man with some measure of authority. And he comes and he kneels before the Son of God, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Notice in so many of these stories, never is the ability of Christ doubted. Right? The leper said, I know you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. 
this man as well knows that if Jesus goes and he uh, raises her up, she will be raised up. If Jesus goes, lays his hand on her, she will be resurrected. And so Jesus rises and he follows him, verse 19, with his disciples. And behold, a woman, as they're on the way, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Again, never doubting the ability of Christ, never doubting his ability to do this. So you can imagine this commotion, there's this crowd gathering interest. This is the one so far who has cast out demons. He has healed a leper. He has stilled a sea. Now he's about to do what we've not seen yet. Interact with the dead, potentially raise the dead. And so the crowd's gathering and this woman in the crowd finds her way to Jesus. She has suffered tremendously for 12 years. Again, Matthew's calling our attention to all these cultural norms being violated. Women were not supposed to just approach men like this in that culture. Furthermore, she, by definition, again, of the Old Covenant, was considered unclean because of her constant flow of blood suffering from uterine bleeding for 12 years. And so she would have been in a constant state of ritual defilement, according to Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 31. Matthew described the woman's condition using a certain verb that was found in the Septuagint, probably to remind his readers of her uncleanness. This unclean woman approaches the Son of God with faith knowing that she will be made well if she touches him. Did you know that one of the punishments for entering the temple with your uncleanness ranged from either 40 lashes with a whip to execution by stoning? Isn't it amazing that the one who is the very temple of God, Jesus Christ, that one unclean woman goes to the temple, as it were, and is made well. She's made well. Again, most Jews would have expected the indirect contact with Jesus to defile Jesus rather than resulting in the woman's healing. But notice what happens. She says, if I just touch the fringe of his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Remember the earlier story? Take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. You trusting in my ability and my willingness to do this has made you well. Do you know that that's what faith is? Faith is saying, if I go to him with all of my ugliness and all of my sin and I trust in him, he will receive me into his family. So often we ask, well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Can you just simplify it? Here it is. Here it is. Go to him with with the, the, the heart that says, if I go to him 
and I lay hold of all of his righteousness, all of his righteousness will become mine because he has said it that would happen. You're taking God at his word. Faith is taking God at his word. God says, if you come, you'll receive eternal life. You come, you receive eternal life. That's what faith is. Take heart, your faith has made you well. And instantly, Matthew calls our attention to the immediate effect of this. Instantly, the woman was made well. This has been a nightmare for 12 years. Never being able to go to the temple. If she did, it was at the risk of her life. Never being able to be around people because she's unclean. Her life has changed forever by this, by this occasion. Immediately, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, these were professional mourners. See, when someone died, you would hire a, a, a group of professional mourners to come in and to, in a sense, intensify the mourning. There would be, there would be sad songs and crying and a lot, a lot of fake crying, obviously. A lot of fake weeping. We know that because they go from weeping, apparently, to laughing at Jesus. He tells them all, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took this little girl by the hand. And the girl arose. The authority of his word and the authority of his work. He takes her by the hand and the girl is resurrected And the report of this went throughout all that district. Matthew wants us to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive the guilty, to call the sinful, to usher in the new, and to raise the dead. To raise the dead. Our king has the authority over life and over death. He has the ability to reverse sin's effects, to undo what sin has done. And this is but a faint picture of what he will do and is doing and will continue to do in the future, raising the dead. On that last day, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry of command. And he will resurrect by his power and by his authority all our bodies if, we, if, it's, you know, if we've been dead at that time. He will resurrect all of his people And all those who are not his people, he will call all things back to life. And we will stand before him. The church will be welcomed in and ushered in. And all who have rejected this king and his authority and his mercy will be banished to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He has the authority, the right, and the power. But he has the authority and the right over death as the God of life the God of life. Fifthly, our king has the authority to heal the blind, to heal the blind, look at verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud. I mean, how did they know? Is there something supernatural happening here? We're not told, but we know for sure there's probably a commotion with the crowds. They're hearing the reports of Jesus coming near, coming close and so they say, this is it, this is it. They can't see him, but they're saying, this is it. And so all, what, what can they do? 
They can use their voices. And so they do, and they say, they, 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 they cry aloud. It's probably already very loud. This is their one shot. This is their one chance to be heard and to be healed by the Son of God. And so they're crying aloud. What are they appealing to? His mercy. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Son of David is a title given to Jesus as the descendant of David who was, who, who was to come and rule over the kingdom of God. They understand that this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited shepherd king who would come as a descendant of King David. Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Again, how they made their way to him? Unknown. Jesus says to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said, Yes, Lord. They understand his deity. Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. In all of these stories, we are reading about how faith leads to wholeness, healing, glory. He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Again, the immediacy that Matthew calls our attention to. Their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. A lot of people are puzzled whenever Jesus tells a healed person, a restored person, not to go out and say anything. Well, Jesus, and this, at this point in his ministry, we know is not so much concerned about gathering big crowds. That would be somewhat of a hindrance to what he's doing and traveling from town to town, town to town, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so he's not interested merely in just gathering numbers and gathering crowds and causing commotion. And so he says, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. They do the opposite of what he said to do. He has the authority to open the eyes of the blind because he has authority over sickness. Again, all of these instances are things that he is still doing. He is still raising the dead and he is still opening the eyes. He opened our eyes. When he raised us from the dead, because we were blind and we were dead. He said, live, we live. He said, see, and what do we see? Glory, beholding the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this happens by the Lord, who is the Spirit. He is still opening the eyes. We have need of not just resurrection, but we have need of seeing what we were created to see. And that is his glory. We were created to behold forever the glory and beauty of God in Christ, God in his son. And what does sin come and do? Sin not only desecrates and brings about death, but sin blinds. Sin blinds us to the realities of God's glory. God's wonder, God's worth and value. But by his grace, he still opens the eyes of the blind because he has that authority. Number six, as we look at verses 32 through 34, Matthew wants us to see that our king has the authority to deliver the oppressed. 
to deliver the oppressed. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed, demon-oppressed man, rather, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. It's interesting, isn't it, to see the different reactions in all of these narratives, in all of these stories. The crowds almost always are amazed. We see earlier they're afraid. They're glorifying God. Here they are marveling. They are astonished, amazed that this demon-possessed man, who was also mute, is healed. Again, what's the real need in this man? The ability to speak or to be delivered from Satan's tyranny? It was that. Well, Jesus, in his kindness and his mercy and his goodness, deals with both. He casts out the demon, and then he enables the man to speak. Enables the man to speak. Here is the word of God in the flesh, enabling one of his created beings to speak. And the Pharisees, they respond in another way. They attribute these things to the power of Satan. He's doing these things because he's in league with the demons. This is all a show. It's all a show. In other words, they're, they're, they're looking at Jesus and the casting out of these demons as something similar to, you know, Benny Hinn's ministries and the planned healings that you have going on. Where, you know, you have this, you know, you see it, you've seen it time and time again in some of these auditoriums where you have this faith healer supposedly saying, you know, right now there's someone in the crowd that needs to be delivered from, they'll throw out something. And then the camera will focus in on some guy, you know, with freshly poured visine or something, with tears running down his eyes, running down his face. And he calls him and he heals him and, and everyone in the crowd is just hollering. And Jesus, they're, they're accusing Jesus of that, that he's, he's in league with the demons and, 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 he's, and he's, he's, he's trying to put on a show here. No, he's not. Light has no fellowship with darkness whatsoever. He delivers the oppressed man because he has that authority. And as we come to this last section, we've seen that our king has the authority to forgive the guilty, to call the sinful, to usher in the new, to raise the dead, to heal the blind, to deliver the oppressed. And now we see in this last section, 35 through 38, our king has the authority to reap the harvest. Our king has the authority to reap the harvest. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Just how we saw chapter four end. This is kind of an inclusio. This is this is a this closes the book end. This is the book end, so to speak. Traveling, preaching, teaching, proclaiming, delivering, healing. That was the essence of his ministry. And he's continuing to do that. And well, how does he do it? Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. This is one of the first indirect references to Jesus as the shepherd here. And this brings back a lot of imagery from either the book of Numbers or especially Ezekiel chapter 34, where we see this shepherd who would come in the latter days and begin to call and gather the lost sheep, wanderers. This is the shepherd of Ezekiel chapter 34. It's fascinating, though, that when he sees the crowds, he he yearns for them, as it were. He breaks, his heart is melted. Quoting from a well-known book today, Gentle and Lowly, the Puritan Richard Sibbs puts it this way, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, Sibbs says, they come from his bowels first. That is, whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. But then Sibbs goes one step deeper. He did it inwardly from his bowels. And Ortland writes, The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his inmost heart as rays from the sun. Jesus sees these crowds and the the one affection, emotion, response, reaction in the heart is compassion, a, a sense of mercy breaking forth because of the hurt in these people. Notice the reason. He he had compassion on them because they were, two things here, harassed and helpless. Harassed by what? He doesn't tell us. But we know, we could think of a number of things here. The religious leaders making it harder for people to enter the kingdom of God, according to Matthew chapter 23 making it so difficult, putting heavy yokes and heavy burdens on the people in contrast to this one who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Harassed by sin, harassed by the demonic forces of the day, Jesus sees what's really happening in the lives of these people. They are harassed and they are helpless harassed by religious leaders, harassed by sin, harassed by the powers of darkness. That's what Jesus sees when he looks out upon humanity. I wonder how we look at people. I wonder how we see the lost. Do we see them as Jesus sees them? I get that we, we live in these times of political tension and you know we're about to come up on another election should the Lord tarry. And we get frustrated, rightfully so, with seeing injustice and empty promises and viewpoints of you know, different people that get elected to office and people that we think should get elected not getting elected. Ultimately, how do we see them, though? How do we see lost people as harassed and helpless? How do we see them? That's how Jesus sees them. Like sheep without a shepherd. That's what they are. Sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. He kind of changes the imagery here. We go from 
sheep and shepherds and now harvests and reaping. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus looked upon these crowds of lost people, burns with compassion, sees them harassed, sees them helpless, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. I could just see him looking upon these crowds saying, the harvest is plentiful, isn't it? Look, look at this harvest of souls. Look at this harvest. It's plentiful. But the laborers, even at that point in time, were few. Twelve, he has not even called all the, all the men yet. He'll call them in the next chapter. So this is kind of preparatory to what we're going to see in chapter 10 when he calls and then commissions these same 12 disciples to then go out. But he prefaces that to let them know, by letting them know that the harvest is plentiful. That's what he sees. As a shepherd, he looks upon a lost humanity and sees them harassed and helpless, shepherdless. But as the Lord of the harvest, he looks out and says, but look at the opportunity. Look at, look, look at the potential. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, he calls them, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Was that him? Was that his father? He's calling them to pray. That laborers would be sent out. And notice that little phrase, into his harvest. His harvest. This helps us to understand that while we see the lost roaming without a shepherd, it's his harvest. It's not our harvest. It's not our field. It's not our message. It's not our power. It all rests on the authority and mercy of the king. The harvest will be reaped in God's way, for God's glory, under God's authority, and by the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew is calling our attention to again and again, is the authority of Christ and the mercy of Christ. It was said in Ezekiel 34, verse 16, that God would shepherd his people in the latter days with justice. He says, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's what Matthew's calling our attention to. This is the Lord of the harvest, the good shepherd. Let us fall, like all these people, upon the mercy and authority of the Christ, who has the authority to not count our sins against us, but also has the authority to raise us up to heights unfathomable forever. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and how it penetrates, how it cuts. We thank you for its power to open the eyes, its power to lead us to the only one who can forgive us, its power to bring about the new life that you know and you see that we ultimately need. You are the God who raises the dead. You are the God who heals the blind. You are the God who delivers the oppressed. And you are the God who 
will reap your harvest. And so, Father, we pray that we would be people who are sent out into this harvest this week, mindful of the king's authority, marveling at the king's mercy, that we might be fruitful disciples for your glory, we pray. Amen.